The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. What are the effectiveness and harms of remdesivir use in patients with COVID-19? Do the effectiveness and harms of the treatment vary by symptom duration? Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call will focus on two articles. The first is an editorial titled Keeping Up with Emerging Evidence in Almost Real Time, published in the Annals May 5th, 2020. The second is Should Remdesivir Be Used for the Treatment of Patients with COVID-19? Rapid Living Practice Points from the American College of Physicians, Version 1, published October 5th, 2020. Joining me on this podcast is Dr. Rebecca Andrews. Dr. Andrews is a primary care internist. She's a full professor at the University of Connecticut and associate program director of their internal medicine residency program. She's been very active in the American College of Physicians, is a former chair of the Council for Early Career Physicians. She's now the governor from Connecticut and the chair-elect for the Board of Governors. She's on various committees, including the Scientific Medical Policy Committee uh, which I'm on also, that authored the second article. We hope you learned something both about uh, our current feelings about remdesivir as well as the process that the American College of Physicians is using to try to keep us all up to date uh, during this pandemic. Thank you for listening. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast this is the most interesting topic, uh, and that is the topic of what to do in the midst of a pandemic to give advice to practicing physicians when the data are limited uh, and haven't matured enough to actually have a guideline. We're going to talk specifically about remdesivir, but I think in order to frame this, it's worthwhile to talk about what the Annals of Internal Medicine has done they wrote a paper back in uh, May called Keeping Up with Emerging Evidence in Almost Real Time. So I know you've read this and we've talked about this, but can you explain this to the audience? What is going on with these quick practice points and updates, et cetera? Sure. I work in primary care and I think for me especially, this is a, a new approach because we really like to use set guidelines with really strong evidence behind them to make the decisions that we share with our patients or do in conjunction with our patients. But it was interesting, you know, the pandemic started and we had a new disease with no treatment, really limited evidence on, on what to do. And so what we have tried to do, and I'll speak just as the medical community, is sort of sift through that data to give each other and our patients recommendations um, when, when information is just coming in rapidly. And the other thing that was different about the pandemic is in the rush to figure out how to treat this disease, we didn't necessarily have really strict 
design control over studies. And there were some anecdotal reports as well. And we were lumping it all in together. And so I think at least from the ACP's point of view, you know, we have a committee that you and I are both on that's trying to utilize that information, but sift through it for, you know, the docs, the layperson, maybe even something like your Department of Public Health, so they can use that as a little bit of a guidance because we really don't have set guidelines yet. Let's talk a bit about the committee, the Scientific Medical Policy Committee that we're both members of. I think the first thing is to contrast that with the Guidelines Committee. How would you explain that to uh, one of your colleagues? I would first say that this committee, the Scientific Medical Policy Committee, was established with a different purpose, specifically to create guidance in those situations where there are questions that we don't necessarily have enough robust data, but we need an answer quickly. Like we are in the midst of doing something or, or there's, for example, this, the pandemic that we have to address. We can't wait for those high powered, large randomized control trials. And so what do we do in the meantime? And so instead of guidelines that are actually, you know, based on multiple high quality uh, reports and, and studies, what we're trying to do is provide guidance and guidance that could change. So one of the interesting things from my perspective is the flexibility that we all have to have on the committee to be able to say, this is where the, the evidence is pointing right now, but this could change and being able to change mid-flow. So the hope would be that we could take what data is out there, look at the quality of it, the robustness of it, and provide sort of guidance based on the best evidence at that time. Not permanently, not moving forward for something like the Clinical Guidelines Committee that would be reviewed again in four to five years, but something that might actually be re-reviewed with a new statement in, say, eight weeks. That's a really great summary. And I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to quote the introduction of the emerging evidence from the annals, a uh, couple of sentences, which I think will reinforce what you said. The first is, a rapid review simplifies or admits some components of the systematic review process to produce information in a timely manner, uh, which reinforces what you said. And then they also said, a living systematic review includes a prospective plan for continual surveillance of evidence with periodic critical appraisal and synthesis of new evidence. And you and I have both been involved in doing that already on this committee because we're trying to keep up to give the people in practice, whether it be inpatient or outpatient practice, the best possible uh, evidence. And so the Annals publishes these and then publishes the updates. And you and I have both received the emails from the Annals saying it's time for another update. And so they, they're pushing us to stay up to date. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been a very interesting time, just how quickly everything moves. It feels like we have these great discussions. We finally come to a consensus on what we want to put out, and then boom, it's almost time to do it again. We've really published three thus far. Two of them are probably not going to get a lot of uh, extra energy. The, the first one was, uh, should clinicians use uh, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine alone or in combination with azithromycin for prophylaxis or treatment? 
that was a living practice point that started right away because there was so much hype about hydroxychloroquine. And we've retired that one uh, and, and said no. And the other one was the mask one. Maybe you could say a word or two about the mask one. There was a lot of discussion both in the public and the um, professional arena that we live our lives in about what to do to prevent the spread of COVID. And should we be wearing N95s all the time? You, you drive down the road and you might see someone with a procedural or surgical mask on while they're in their car. Is that necessary? Are cloth masks good enough? And I think what I like about this practice point was that it served the medical community, but also the public so well in providing some guidance on what we should and shouldn't be doing and are they equivalent to each other and in what situations would you use one versus the other? Um, this one is also now retired. I think the retirement letter is gonna come out sometime around this week uh, because I think we have as much evidence as we're going to have and there aren't gonna really be any significant updates to it. So the latest one uh, is remdesivir, and this is a very interesting story. We're recording this, and the article was published before the WHO study was advertised. That study has not been published, so we cannot get data from it. I think this is a good example of this is what we know today, but I'm certain that we'll be revising after we sort through with methodologists, etc., the new uh, uh, remdesivir data. How do we go about developing this practice point and what process will we use to incorporate uh, the newer data? So this uh, for me has been definitely a steep learning curve, figuring out how, how we do it. There's a, a struggle between um, wanting to have as much confidence in the evidence that there is and waiting too long and not being able to provide any guidance at all. And so, you know, for those of us, and I think you can be in my category of those who like to be a perfectionist and have some control, it's a little bit different. You know, the first thing you got to do is we teach the medical students and the residents all the time about level and quality of evidence using the grade criteria, just, you know, to look at the trustworthiness or the certain confidence that you can have in it. And we, we look to what the trials are that are out there and what kind of trial it is, but also like the degree of the effect, how many people were, were involved in this. And sometimes, and the mask article is a perfect situation for this, we don't have direct evidence. So we have to pull a little bit for indirect evidence, which I have to be honest was something that I was a little bit uncomfortable with at first, because you want to know that you're providing the right guidance. But in the lack of information, sometimes you have to use either the indirect evidence or try to translate some of it, some of it over. So for this one in particular, you're right, the, the date and time is kind of funny, uh, given that the WHO trial is being splashed throughout the news before it's even published. I think it was just the interim data that hasn't really yet been evaluated. But we were able to use a search that was done by the US Department of Veteran Affairs. They have like this evidence synthesis program. And then we did a second sort of update on what happened between June 3rd and August 31st. And that's what we used to base our practice points. And there were at that time, four randomized control trials that we chose that had the highest level of confidence behind the data. I guess there were two key questions that we tried to address. 
Would you like to go over those questions? Sure. So struggling with a little bit of what was going to work for our patients, the first question is, what are the effectiveness and harms of remdesivir use in patients with COVID-19? And then the second question was, do the effectiveness and harms of the treatment vary by symptom duration, disease severity, and then treatment duration? So thinking of that almost like if you wanna compare it to the flu, although we don't like to compare this to the flu, does it matter how long someone has had the symptoms before you start to treat them? And wrapped all into that second question, I think, is the first, do no harm. We can't have treatments in use that are more harmful than beneficial that we're sort of guiding people to use. If I remember right, we, we, we didn't find a lot of harm. So now the question is, the biggest harm is the cost of the drug. And so then given, let's set put cost aside because we're talking about can this decrease length of stay? Can this decrease mortality? So we're looking at both morbidity and mortality. What kind of recommendations are we making as of the time the paper was published and the paper was published on October the 5th? We're recording this on October the 22nd. In between that time is when the WHO study was publicized. It has not come out yet, and we don't really know all the answers to the, to the questions that you so nicely framed for us. We, we don't know the relationship of how soon after exposure did they get it? Did they get it late? Did they get it early in the course? And those might be important questions. So what's your summary of where we are as of right now while we're waiting for more information? I would use our practice points for summary, and we came up with three of them after reviewing all the data. The first was to use remdesivir for five days as treatment for patients with moderate COVID-19, to use remdesivir for five days with severe COVID-19, but not those patients who required ECMO or mechanical invasive mechanical ventilation. And then the third was to consider at least extending the treatment to 10 days. If during that time period that we were treating them, they worsened enough that they then required that invasive mechanical ventilation um, or ECMO. And you know, again, this was based on those four randomized controlled trials. I would say when looking at the evidence behind it, we're talking about where does it seem to be a net benefit, which I think is different than when we have a lot of robust information that we're using for a guideline. And I just, I just wanna highlight that again, because I know people are gonna hear this and they're gonna already have seen the tweets and the news about the WHO trial that's not quite out yet. That it, at this time when we published this, this was really what we have to work with. And the number of randomized control trials is small. It, it's only four that we have to look at this. Like you, I've been following the tweets and reading blog posts and following some ID docs. And the WHO study is really different. It's going to be difficult for us to analyze because it's not truly a randomized control trial. It was open label. And to try to try to compare the data from that kind of a study to these randomized control trials is going to be a challenge. And the other thing that we tried to, I don't think we've quite gone there yet, is at what point in the infection is remdesivir, if it's worthwhile, and it seems to be worthwhile in these randomized controlled trials, is it more valuable 
when you give it earlier in the course when the virus is still replicating, because my understanding in, uh, in October is that we're trying to treat two different problems. Number one is virus replication, and number two is the body's response to the virus. Remdesivir can't do anything with the body's response to the virus. It can only try to decrease the number of uh, virons. I agree with everything you said there. The, the WHO trial, people I'm worried are gonna look at just the number of patients and say, oh, this is such a powerful study without realizing that A, it was open label and B, there were both individual treatments and combination treatments at multiple different institutions. It's controlled, but controlled in a very different way than um, I think what people are gonna think of. And then your second point, I agree 100%. When thinking about trying to decrease the viral replication, we know that treating influenza, there is a time window that is effective to kind of get in there and get the medicine started. And after that, it really doesn't change the course of the illness very much. And that's something I think we're going to have to keep a close eye on. I don't think any of the trials have done a good job at highlighting, is there a difference in treating early versus treating later? This conversation you and I are having right now, I think highlights the value of these living practice points that we're going to have to go back. And I think saying a word or two about our committee, our committee has clinicians and has methodologists on it together. So we have people like you and I who do clinical work on a regular basis and have that as a frame for thinking about these things. And we have other people who probably do a little bit less clinical work, but are really strong in the methodology to make sure that we're comparing apples and apples and not apples and uh, kumquat. <laughs> yeah, and then we even have uh, a lay person on the committee, which makes it a little bit different than some of the other scientific committees that are out there to make sure that we're seeing all points of view. If you look in the literature about uh, minority viewpoint adding to conversation, it helps you take into account the ethical considerations and some of the things that, that you and I might not think of at first, such as cost in the rush to try to find a treatment for our patients. It's, it's an amazing committee that really does a lion's share of the work with such a rapid turnover and the conversation has been so robust. I love when someone sends a contrary comment in about what we're currently working on because it gives me a whole new viewpoint on the data to think about and, and really be sure that we've thought of everything before we publish. Just to finish, what are some of the other issues that you think we'll be uh, addressing over the next couple of months? Well, I think for COVID-19, we still need to know timing for treatment. You know, there's some evidence looking at what we've published so far that five days and 10 days may be equivalent and maybe there are fewer adverse effects with only the five days. I think we need to consider time to, so we've looked at recovery, meaning getting out of the hospital, but I don't know that we have enough evidence yet looking at time to clinical improvement. And I think that that is something that we have to uh, be really attuned to look for new data 
I also am hopeful that we will have better. A lot of the evidence that we have is low certainty. And I would really love to put something out that had you know, more of a high certainty or at least have some more studies out there so that we can say moderate certainty. I think the second topic that you mentioned, which is the body's response to this virus, I think that that's something that hopefully there will be emerging treatments that have enough evidence behind them that we will have the opportunity to review that and put out some guidance on that as well. We're also going to start looking at how valuable antibody levels are uh, and, and is there anything to antibody testing and maybe even trying to understand the role of T cells, et cetera. This is Scientifically, this is a fascinating time. Uh, culturally and medically, it's uh, very stressful, but trying to sort through all this scientifically maybe is something that as physicians gives us some hope that we're gonna make progress uh, and trying to understand that so we can deliver the best care to our patients uh, is gratifying. Yeah, I almost can't believe that I didn't mention the antibodies because it's been such a heated conversation between my brother and I. He's he's great to go back and forth about the evidence that either is or is not out there. I hope that there's a silver lining at the end of this, just as an aside, that in the medical world, we develop a little of uncertainty tolerance, um, and it's a little bit less draining as we get used to the fact that there may be new diseases that come out but we have the capability, like with this committee and with the annals, to use best evidence at that time to provide guidance so there's a little bit of light in the tunnel of the unknown. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for uh, joining me uh, on this podcast. It's a pleasure being on the same committee as you, and hopefully we can get back together when there's an update to this, uh, to this and talk about how... Uh, Further studies have influenced our understanding of remdesivir and other treatments that come along. Well, thanks for having me, and it was a pleasure to see you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This uh, discussion really focused on two different questions. Number one, how does a physician organization respond to a pandemic in terms of giving advice. We discussed the urgency of giving advice about a variety of topics without the luxury of waiting the amount of time that it takes to develop a guideline. The second thing is our current analysis of remdesivir, which we think is helpful in many patients based upon randomized controlled trials. Finally, we talked about how we will have to wait as more data comes in and reassess our recommendations on remdesivir and other things that we make recommendations about. Uh, This is a moving target and uh, we have a committee set up to address changes that might occur and update our living practice points. Uh, These are not final guidelines, but rather the best information we have at the time that we publish. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you learned a great deal both about the American College of Physicians and about remdesivir. Addendum. Soon after we recorded this podcast, the FDA approved remdesivir for use in the United States against COVID-19. 
in reviewing their statement, they reviewed the exact same randomized controlled trials that uh, the Scientific Medical Policy Committee had used to make its recommendations. It's now available for use in hospitalized patients. Thank you once again for listening to this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.